Spoke Media. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Friends, Family Ghosts was created based on this feeling that I had. That there were stories in my own family that I couldn't make sense of. Stories told and retold after dinner at holidays, after everyone had drunk a little red wine. Stories about things like jewel thieves and long-lost uncles that I couldn't get out of my head after everyone left the table and went to bed. I would sit by myself ruminating on what I'd heard, wondering how these stories could possibly be true. And if they were, if the truth behind them might help me make sense of things about my life that I couldn't fit together. And so, the idea for this show, originally, was that in every episode, we'd hear a story like that from someone's family, and then try to figure out the truth behind the legend. But as we find ourselves here, in the midst of the third season of Family Ghosts, I've been realizing that our show is also an opportunity to do something slightly different. Because sometimes people aren't haunted by stories, but instead by the absence of a story. They live in a reality that seems like it must have some sort of story behind it, but the only people who know that story are gone, or they're still around, but they aren't willing to talk. More and more on the show, I find that we're making episodes about people trying to weave their own story from whatever stray threads of their history they have access to. I want to tell you about this ring that I'm wearing. It's a silver signet ring with the letters WALT etched into the surface. WALT is the name of the radio station that produces family ghosts. And I should note that WALT is a radio station I made up. Sometimes people hear the name WALT in the show, and then they come up to me and they say, hey, I saw Family Ghosts is on WALT now. Where are they based? At which point I tap on my forehead and say, right here, baby. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while and heard me ruminate on things like haunted forests and secret messages encoded in photographs, I'm guessing it won't surprise you that I had this ring made at a flea market by a man with a Salvador Dali mustache. And I did that because rings are important to me. One of the many things I learned making the first episode of Family Ghosts, which is about my mom's side of my family, is that for a while, rings were our family business. My great-grandfather, Saul, moved to the U.S. with $15 in his pocket, and he became a traveling salesman selling antique rings. Many years later, his son, my grandpa Gilly, became an engineer in the Coast Guard during World War II, and after the war, Grandpa Gilly wanted to continue his engineering career, but no one would hire him because he was Jewish. So he picked up where Saul had left off in the antique jewelry business. He became a salesman in the Diamond District on 47th Street here in New York, which is where he met and ended up briefly married to a woman who, speaking of rings, was part of an international jewel smuggling ring. And this woman, who ghost family diehards will recall from our pilot episode, was named Sabina. And Sabina tried to establish trust with Grandpa Gilly's kids, my mom and her siblings, by getting them presents. So at some point, she gave my aunt this big doll. And that gift actually led to my mom's first art project, which was that she chopped the head off the doll and hung its headless body from the railing in their house. 
My mom went on to have a career making analog art with what I perceive to be fairly intense death imagery, which I grew up seeing on the walls and bookshelves of our house, which is what led me to ask my mom about the legend of Sabina in the first place. So that's half the reason that it was important to me to have this ring with a handmade design. But then there's the inscription on the ring, WALT. The reason I picked WALT for the name of my imaginary radio station is to pay homage to a man named Walt Kelly, the creator of my favorite comic strip. It's called Pogo, and it ran from the late 40s all the way through the 70s. But I discovered it when we used to go to visit my grandmother on my dad's side in upstate New York. My grandparents had almost all of the Pogo books in their basement, and the strips have this incredibly kinetic, heartfelt mix of slapstick comedy, absurdist wordplay, turtles playing banjos, alligators smoking cigars, and, as I would only appreciate many years later, fairly subversive Cold War political satire. I used to spend entire afternoons in my grandparents' basement reading and rereading these books, with the dull hum of adult conversation upstairs in the background. And those are some of my happiest memories. To this day, Pogo is one of my absolute favorite things in the world. So I had always thought it would be cool to have a radio station called WALT in honor of Walt Kelly. But the thing that really cinched it was this conversation I had with my dad's older brother. I was interviewing him about another brother of theirs, an uncle I never got to meet because he died by suicide when he was very young. That was the story that became the basis for the finale of our first season. In the midst of this interview, I asked my uncle about Pogo and whether he had read it growing up, and he told me that he had, and that in fact, reading Pogo and laughing about it with my grandparents was one of the ways they'd all been able to keep going in the wake of the suicide. It turns out that Walt Kelly was a ray of light in the midst of this incredibly dark time for my family, which I had no idea about when I started reading Pogo. But Ghost Family, I would like to think that the first time I opened a Pogo book and felt this immediate connection to it, I somehow sensed that history. And to the extent that WALT is a radio station, which, again, it technically isn't. That wave of recognition is what I'd like to think we're tuning into. Whenever I sit down in the booth to record something for Family Ghosts, I shut my eyes and I touch the surface of my ring, and I imagine a radio dial locking onto a broadcast that was previously a cascade of static. But suddenly, a new station is coming through loud and clear. All at once, the threads have come together, and I can hear something I never knew was there. Today on the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of one story, we're going to bring you three, each of them about that moment when the static abruptly dissolves. From Spoke Media and WALT, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is episode 23, Your Ghost. Coming up after the break. He knows that I have nothing but patricide in my heart. <laughs> we'll be right back. 
Welcome back, Ghost Family. Our first story this week is by Sandy Marks. She told it recently at Family Ghosts Live. So it's a Sunday night supper, and I'm out in a restaurant, and sitting across from me is my dad, and sitting to my left is my adorable husband, Keith. Now, Keith is holding my left hand pretty tight. And to the uninitiated, to people sitting in that restaurant, they're probably thinking, oh, what an adorable family. It's a Sunday night, they're out to dinner. Look at her with her dad and her husband. And that guy can't keep his hands off of her, which might or might not be true, but he's not holding my hand because he likes me, which he does. He's holding my hand because he knows that I have nothing but patricide in my heart. And that if he lets go, I'm going to reach for a utensil, probably the fork, it looks the most damaging, and I'm going to lunge at Arnold, my father, who I'm so unreasonably angry with, I cannot calm the hell down. Now, my dad is in town from Florida just for the weekend because it's my mom's unveiling. Now, if you're not Jewish, I will quickly give you a little tutorial. An unveiling is the saddest Groundhog Day in the world. (laughs) You lose someone you love. In this case, my mother, my world, my rock, the most gorgeous, fabulous creature. She's like the definition of moxie. She was this big woman, always sweating. She, without any, like, provocation, would just start singing Peggy Lee at the groceries store? Like, is that all there is? I don't know. The woman was, she always embarrassed me, but I really did have pride. And my friends, she was the one that all your friends loved. She She was it. And she's gone, and I'm stuck with him. And the, the funeral was a year earlier in Mount Hebron in Queens on a really cold December day. And, you know, we Jews, we, we all traipse over to the, the cemetery. Now, we didn't have a rabbi because I'm just a cultural Jew. So instead, you got to rent one. And we're in a gig economy, so it's not really that big deal to find. You could rent anything. I mean, you could rent a moil. They probably get like five stars on their Yelp review. I don't know, but it's not that big a deal. But at the time, it was probably Craigslist or Angie's list, somebody's list. I don't know. We rented him. He seemed fine. Who knows? You're so sad. You're not really thinking about it. And everyone's standing there in the cold. And then they have this tradition, which I'm sure a lot of you think is lovely, where you have to shovel the first shovel of dirt over the casket. I don't like it. I can hear the crunch still all these years later. You know, the union dudes are standing back there with their shovels. They're like, come on, Jews, hurry up. We got work to do here. It's just, okay, and then a year later, you go back for the unveiling when the stone is etched, and you have to rent another rabbi. It wasn't the same one, because I never kept track. I rented another one. Far fewer people show up. You traipse back, it's cold. You're back there, and then, and it's covered with muslin. And it's like all of a sudden he becomes Penn and Teller and he like whips it off. Like you could almost think he's saying in Yiddish abracadabra. You can kind of feel it. And there behold is my sweet Greta Handelman, born in 1929, died in, I mean, she was 74, okay? She was young. And I'm just, I'm spent, I'm exhausted. We had just gone through this. And I told my dad, okay, after the unveiling, I'll keep my promise and I'll take you to your absolute favorite restaurant before you have to go back home, which was our whole family's favorite restaurant and it's Sammy's Romanian. Now, I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's 
up home. It's, it's right near here. You can kind of traipse over there when you're done. Now, the thing, this place has been open for a really long time, and it looks it, because they haven't washed the windows since Carter was in office. At it's kind of a mess, but that's what makes it so fantastic. And all the tables are stuffed together. It just looks like they throw up tables, and wherever they landed, that's where people have to sit. And you all sit next to each other, and on every table, there's chicken fat, which is schmaltz, and seltzer bottles. And then they claim that they invented bottle service because they have vodka, uh, Stolichnaya, in these ice boxes, like ice casing on every table. I'm sure it's because they know that every family there hates each other and they're going to be fighting and they got to get drunk. But it's there. It's all there. And the waiters, oy, okay, the waiters, they're original. They've been there since the beginning. They're wearing the same shirt since they started. It's like yellow and they're a mess and they're angry and they're very, you know, knowledgeable about the menu and they hand you a menu, but there's no point because they're going to tell you what you're eating. It's not like you have an option. You're going to have the flank steak with lots of garlic. It's going to hang off your plate. It's Flintstone food. It's it's delicious. Um, and then they have entertainment. Who knew? They have a guy on a Lacasio keyboard, and he takes requests, but he has this huge song catalog of, like, Billy Joel. One of his songs is, Bring us a song, I'm the, you're the schmata man. He sings this with a straight face, and everyone's singing along. He's the schmata man. It's, it's, it's really divine. Okay, so we're sitting there, but I'm so angry at this man who is alive while my mother is gone. It wasn't supposed to be that way. And I know it's unreasonable and it sounds horrifying, but let me explain. Okay, so this man, my father, um, was really um, kind of absent in my life. I mean, I at this point was 53 and he had never hugged or kissed me or really shared any stories with me. So I kind of didn't know him. And it wasn't all his fault because when I was eight or nine years old, my mother pulled my sister and I aside because she just was not getting along with this man. And in like sort of a conspiratorial stage whisper, she said, I'm leaving your father. I was like eight. Like I don't even, like when you're eight and someone is leaving, you don't even make the leap, like, what does that mean? You're leaving him, leaving him, like, for an hour, for a day, what? But I knew, there was a part of me that knew this meant, don't get too close, because he's not going to be around all that long. So we never really became close. And he did have a lot of issues. He never could hold a job, and he had a problem with telling, making up stories, and it was his problem. So I never got to know him, and my mom was the one who took, raised my sister and I. So my father was so madly in love with my mom, he really was, that he would do anything for her. He used to love to brag that when they got married, she was built like a brick shithouse. Now, I don't know what that meant, but apparently that's a good thing. I mean, if you were in the army, I suppose you know what that means. I still don't know what that means, but anyway. So he realized that the one way he could get my mom on Team Arnold was if he gave her what she wanted, which in my mom's case was sugar. Now, if you're a diabetic, as my mom was, she had this problem where she couldn't curb her sugar needs, okay? But they game the system. And because my dad was her enabler, he was more than happy to do what it took because he wanted her to love him. So cling peaches and heavy syrup, no problem. That was her fruit of choice. He just would adjust to the insulin, you know, medication. Or perhaps it was a seven layer cake or a Van Chalk straw from Seal Test, whatever it was, he made it work. And I was so upset for years. I kept saying, Dad, you gotta stop, you gotta stop. Mom's gonna get sick if you keep giving her sugar. And he says, don't worry, we have it. We have it covered. Take care of your own family. Which, okay, so yes, I did have my own three kids to worry about, but I was really worried about my mom until one day 
He obviously fucked up, and she went into a diabetic coma. And I'm sure if they did forensics, they would find cheesecake on a fork in that sink. I know they would have, because they messed up and they didn't give the right. And okay, so she's she goes, she's she dies because of this sugar problem. Didn't have to happen. And I was so angry at him because I knew that if he had done more, or at least in my mind, if he had done more, this didn't have to happen. And now he's here sitting across from me and he's eating with his mouth like we all do in my family. We're Jews. We spit our food while we're talking and food spraying. And while his mouth is moving, I just want to like, I'm so angry. But I do the only thing that I know will keep me sane because this was before that I could microdose. I didn't have... I didn't. I mean, now I do. I do. But then I didn't have that. There was nothing like that. So I, I had a drink. And I'm not, you know, I weigh 99 pounds, so I don't drink that much. So I just started drinking the vodka on the table because I also thought, oh, it's on the table. It's just for all of us. It's free. It's not, believe me. But I, what do I know? So I'm drinking and I'm eating my, my oily meats, which are delicious, but you know, there's schmaltz involved. It's, it's not exactly something for your digestion system that's going to go well. But I don't care. I'm just doing it. So I eat the meal. I don't even know what's going on because I'm getting really drunk. And finally, Keith, God bless my husband, he pays the check and he starts ushering us out of the restaurant. So I go first and he's going to help my dad. And I walk outside and I get to our car, which is parked right there. And I get inside the back. I know they'll ride shotgun. And I guess it was a combination of the vodka and the meats and the schmaltz, but I start really letting it go, letting it all go on Christie Street. I just let it all go. It's like an exorcism. It's all going. All that anger and all that disappointment and sadness in the form of like small potatoes and <laughs> gristle. There's gristle. It's all out there. I'm really sick, but I, I, I'm starting to just like come back to myself. So, okay, so I'm sitting in the back street in my head. Okay, me, back seat. Meanwhile, my dad and my and my husband come, they don't even notice that there is some sort of like, you know, toxic fire happening on the street. They don't even see it, they just get in the car. And I, I'm old, so I'm giving the motion that I roll down the window, I push the button, the window goes down, and then I hang my head out like a golden retriever, all the way up the Bronx River Parkway, back to Westchester where we live, you know, like sniffing at the air, trying to get some, just trying to get back to some sort of health. I'm a mess, and my dad, and Keith are talking about sports. I don't know what they're talking about. I'm not really listening. All right, so we get back home. Now, meanwhile, I got to get my dad back to the airport the next morning, or there really will be some blood on some carpet somewhere in my house. So I'm starting to like come back to myself thinking, okay, so I'm wandering around, but Keith can't find me. I'm sort of lost to him. Now, our house isn't that big. Now, he's already put my dad to bed. He's got him undressed. He packed his bag. He set the alarm can't make any mistakes, packed him up. And now he's looking for me all over our house. I'm gone. He checks the kitchen. He checks the bedroom. He checks everywhere. And he thinks, which had you know good reason to think that I wandered onto the post road. And he doesn't know. He just thinks I've gone crazy. So, uh, and our kids, uh, I think they were out on a sleepover that night. They weren't even home. So finally he finds me. I am completely blackout drunk in my closet. I'm out and I'm hugging a brown suede boot, one boot. I'm like in the fetal position. And I, I must have been a mess because Keith had to extract me from the boot and he probably hosed me down. I'm sure I smelled like really old cottage cheese. I don't know, I was a mess. He got me undressed, he hosed me down, he got me into bed, he set my alarm, he knew. 
I got to get this woman to the airport in the morning, or this is really going to be a repeat tomorrow. It's going to be like days of wine and roses. This isn't good. All right, so finally, I get into bed. I must have, you know, I was knocked out, so I must have, you know, been asleep because then next thing I know, the alarm rings and I got to get up to get my dad to the airport. Now, I'm still a little drunk. It's about eight in the morning, but I'm like, I got to get him to the airport. I got to get this man that I really don't like to the airport who I'm still so angry at. So I get up. He's ready. He's very quiet. I get him in the car. It takes time. I get in the car. We drive. We don't make a sound all the way to Kennedy Airport. It's pretty, it's like, I don't even think he puts the music on, which normally would have been like some sports station. But I think he knew, just leave her with her thoughts, leave her with her thoughts. So we get to JetBlue. We pull up. And I do the unthinkable, which is that I double park. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't do that. I'm a rules girl. If you double park, you're going to get yelled at. There's going to be a whistle blown. But I'm not even thinking. I'm not worrying about any of that. So I pull up. And I get out of the car, and now I don't know what takes over me. I don't know if it's because I'm a mom. I don't know if it's because I'm a human being. I don't know if it's because I, I just have feelings that are bigger than me to control. But I walk him a little bit towards the door, and then I turn him to face me, and I grab him, and I hug him so tight. I put my arms around him, and he goes completely rigid because he knows that I must have these patricidal tendencies and he might be thinking, oh, she's going to do it in a public place. <laughs> so I'm hugging him really tight and I'm just feeling him until he could finally, I feel him sort relax into me, like just kind of start to hug me back. I don't let go until I feel him hug me back. I release and then I say, bye dad. Nothing else, just bye dad. And I watch him start to walk with his roller luggage. And he's frail. He's round-shouldered. I just see his back, round-shouldered, his little head. He's shuffling slowly. And my heart is breaking because he's all I have. He's the only parent I have, good or bad. We've all made mistakes, but I don't truly know this heartbroken man who lost the one woman who he loved so much. He did whatever he could, what he was capable of doing. And watching him walk back towards the doors, leaving me, was finally the moment when I was able to let go. Thank you. That was Sandy Marks. Coming up after the break, we'll meet Richard, who goes hunting for answers it might be too late to find. We get in the car, we go to the cemetery, we search around. Within a short amount of time, I find the family plot. And there's the burial stone. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Welcome back to episode 23 of Family Ghosts. This week, we're bringing you three different stories about people receiving transmissions from the past. Next up, Richard Cardillo, who told this story at Family Ghosts Live last summer. My mother's name was Angelina, Little Angel. I always thought that name was a little bit facetious because most of her adult life, she was a pretty large woman. A lot of that weight issue had probably something to do with the fact that my mother gave birth to nine children in 18 years. I was number six. 
Probably had an awful lot to do with the fact also that she was never really good at taking care of herself. I mean, she was the most loving, giving, service-oriented woman I ever knew. But she had this deep-seated sense of inadequacy. Though no matter what she did in her life, it just wasn't enough. It was almost as if she was invisible to the world. I remember we'd end our days, these nine kids that she'd take care of, and she'd just be at her wit's end, and we'd hear that wail bellowing through the house, Maron, you kids, I do and do and do for all of you, and it's just never enough. So that's the way we lived our lives, that we were never going to be enough. My mom died in March of 1991. And we sort of followed in her footsteps. All of my nine, eight brothers and sisters ended up in some kind of service-oriented jobs. Uh, Psychotherapists, teachers, nurses. Uh, My sister's a social worker. But I had to go a different route. I was so afraid of being gay and labeled the gay one in the family that I was going to insult the world and God that I had to hide it. And I went the religious route. And at the age of 16 years old, I devoted my life to Jesus Christ and entered a Catholic monastery of monks and took a vow of celibacy forever. (laughs) Because what 16-year-old wouldn't want to give up his penis (laughs) for the rest of his life? I quickly learned how to do all of this, but knew it wasn't the true me. And I was feeling inadequate. And I finally, right after my mother died in 1991, decided this is not the life for me, and I left. In a very, very short amount of time, about a year after she left, I came out of the closet and I met a guy. My partner, Peter, who I was with for 18 wonderful years of life. And Pete was the, I know. (laughs) Pete was my teacher. He got me going in all things relational, all things feeling good about myself, all things gay. And he was kind of my mentor through all of this. A couple of years into our relationship, though, he wasn't doing too, too well. And I reflected back to my mother and what went on in her life. So I went to visit my Aunt Nettie. My Aunt Nettie was the youngest sister, and my Aunt Jo, she was the oldest sister. My mother was the youngest sister. And I said, you know, we buried mom two years ago. I still have this thing of how come she was the way she was. I don't even know how she got her name. And that's when I got the story of the two little angels. It's October of 1921, and my grandfather, Quirino, and my grandmother, Fortunada, just landed at Ellis Island off a ship coming from Rocca Seca, Dry Rock, in Italy. Powerful immigrants, which we should protect today, thank you very much. Powerful immigrants who had a dream in this country. In tow was their little daughter, Josephine, Josephine, my Aunt Jo. And my grandmother was mighty pregnant with her second child. Only a week after she landed and settled on Mulberry Street in Little Italy, she gives birth to a beautiful daughter and christens that daughter, Angelina. Angelina was the apple of everybody's eye. She stood for what was great with a new country. She was 
embodying all the hopes and dreams that everybody had for this new world, she could do no wrong. Short amount of time, because it's a good Italian Catholic family, my grandmother Fortunata gets pregnant again, only about a year after giving birth to Angelina. In her ninth month of pregnancy, Angelina gets violently, violently ill. And tragically, she dies that week of scarlet fever. Only six days after trying to deal with that, they made the decision to ship the body back to Italy. And after putting their dead baby's body back on a boat to Italy, because they thought that we're gonna move back there someday, six days after that, she gives birth to my mother and promptly gives her the name Angelina. You know, I'm not a big believer in armchair psychology. I, I don't really believe in an awful lot of the things that people say about it. But there's got to be some kind of a connection between never feeling like you're good enough, feeling like you're invisible, a total sense of inadequacy, and never measuring up to a dead baby, a sister you'll never meet or can live up to, a phantasm, a ghost. So this was the life that we were all kind of in for. I told you before I did meet Peter and I shared those stories with him. And he said, you need to feel good about yourself. And I would hear that over and over. But within a very short amount of time, we met up with some issues of our own. Uh, Pete was getting increasingly sicker with pneumonia, neuropathy. He was losing a little bit of his vision. And the handwriting was kind of on the wall. In the 1980s, he had already buried two partners to AIDS. He just had never gotten tested. So we decided we needed to do this for both of our sake. And we went and we got tested. And sure enough, Pete tested positive for the AIDS virus. The doctor quickly got him on the meds because the cocktails were out at that time. And then he quickly sent us to Gay Men's Health Crisis, a group in New York that was going to give us counseling on how to live as a serodiscordant couple, positive, negative. And I hated it. There was nothing that was ever discordant in our relationship. Nothing. We loved each other deeply. This was my hero in life and my lover and my partner. And it was just digging me apart. But we went for all of that training. Thinking that his AIDS diagnosis was a death sentence, Peter decided he wanted to travel as quickly as possible. And the first place he wanted to travel was Italy. And I said, great, I had never been there before. I wanted to go. And the craze of following a little bit of ancestry was just coming in. So I said, I'll go with one caveat. Can we spend one day trying to find the grave of Angelina number one? And he agreed. I didn't know what to expect, but we got to Italy. We're having a great time. And the day of the cemetery visit comes. Pete's not having a good day. He's feeling horrible. And he was even offering to me, I'll stay home while you go to the grave. And I was freaking, and I don't know why I was freaking. I couldn't handle the situation. So I said, no, you're coming with me every step of the way. That's it. We get in the car. We go to the cemetery. We search around. Within a short amount of time, I find the family plot. And there's the burial stone. Angelina Adelina Grimaldi. 1921 to 1923. I'm not sure what I'm feeling, 
And all of a sudden, Peter's behind me, and he said, I'm going to go back to the car. I'm like, don't you dare. I need you here. Now, a cemetery is no place to hang out when you got the runs, when you're feeling shitty, and literally, and you just can't get anything done. But he stayed. He was a trooper. I start taking pictures. I'm looking around, and I'm not quite sure why I'm there, but I'm not feeling like I'm getting any answers. And then finally, Pete, in a hushed whisper, says, I can't do it anymore. And I erupt. Will you just shut the fuck up? You're driving me crazy. We had never raised our voices one to the other. And doing that scared the bejesus out of me. Pete always had the bigger heart than I did. And he said, listen, let's put into effect all of that counseling they taught us. Let's get away from the site of the fight, go off and ask each other the two questions. What's going on? And what do you need from me? So we got away from the site. I am now leaving this Angelina number one's memorial grave and not knowing what to expect after that. But I'm crying my eyes out. And Pete, always with the bigger heart, wanted me to go first. So I said, Pete, ever since you got this diagnosis of AIDS and started getting sick, I'm a wreck. I'm feeling so totally inadequate in our lives. I'm just feeling you're going to get sicker and sicker, and I'm going to sit around and not watch you get any better. I feel I'm just going to do and do for you, and it's never going to be enough. Our gasps were simultaneous. In very eerie, real, powerful, and real-time ways, we were both channeling this age-old drama of the two Angelinas. We were channeling what was going on with not feeling good enough. We just hugged each other and knew we wanted it to be better. We got away from the entire cemetery, got in the car, stopped at about five different places for Pete to take care of things, and then we decided to go to a travel agency. We were to leave the next day for the United States of America, but we made this decision that we were going to extend our trip. We needed this time of healing, so we booked a four-day excursion to the Isle of Capri, and on that island, we were more than enough for each other. Only five years after that, Pete died. Um, still miss him. And I realize now how much I gained from him, but also from my past. And I feel now that that might have been a legacy of feeling inadequate, of not being enough, of doing and doing and doing, and just not being able to be something for everybody. But I know that Pete helped me through that. And I know every step of the way, we had a guiding touch of two little angels. Thank you. That was Richard Cardillo. Coming up, one final story. So let me tell you what's happening. I'm laying on... Uh, my son's bed, and he's sleeping in the next room with my husband, and I'm sleeping on my son's bed because I need the space, because I am extremely pregnant with our second uh, child. After the break, Namisha Ladva, 
confronts some complicated history on her quest for an answer to a deceptively simple question. So I'm laying on that bed, trying to figure out, how did this happen? Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. For our final story this week, we bring you this piece by Namisha Ladva, who told it to close out the season three launch party for Family Ghosts a couple months ago. All right, so the thing about going last is that you get to really amp up your anxiety. <laughs> I am so lit right now. <laughs> Sorry, I have to shake. <laughs> Okay, Um, so I grew up in an Indian immigrant family, and my family didn't come here to America straight from India. We moved from India to Kenya, where I was born, and then from Kenya to England, where I got my accent, it's not fake, and then from England to America, where I live now. This means that I have grown up with a version of Indian culture that is about a hundred years old and squarely puts women second. I mean that literally, actually. So when I was growing up in England, I lived with my extended family of 11 people and we ate in two sittings. In the first sitting, uh, my grandmother, who's the matriarch, ate with her two sons, my father and his older brother, and then the firstborn grandson, while the two moms uh, made fresh roti and the oldest grandchild, who was a girl, served everyone. And I ate in the second sitting with all the extra girls and my baby brother and the two moms, and no one served us. Now, this secondness was not a quirk of my family. I regularly went to Indian weddings where The men ate first when the food was hot, and the women ate second when it was not. So I have spent my entire adult life fighting against this secondness. And I would say um, that I, I felt like I had actually conquered it with my graduate degree certified feminism. I'm feeling pretty proud of that. Um, until the night of April 6, 2009. On that night, I realized that I had failed to conquer it. So let me tell you what's happening. I'm laying on uh, my son's bed. He's three years old, and he's sleeping in the next room with my husband. And I'm sleeping on my son's bed because I need the space of my own uh, situation because I am extremely pregnant with our second uh, child. And uh, in fact, I'm so pregnant, I'm actually a few days past my due date. And there's reason to believe that if this baby doesn't get born soon, the baby could be in danger. In fact, a few days prior, I'd found myself in the emergency room, and the emergency room doctor said this to me. Look, if I see you in here again, I'm just going to have to take this baby out. You got that? You understand me? (laughs) I I understood. So I'm laying on the bed, and there's a few things you should know. First, I realize that, I I should tell you that this baby is a girl. 
Second, I should tell you that in this moment, I have discovered that I have a preference for boys. And because of one and two together, I am having a full-blown panic attack. Because what I have discovered is I have only grown up with bad ideas about how to raise girls. I don't have any good ones. And in fact, the absence of my stress about raising a boy in my first pregnancy proves the presence of my preference for boys in this pregnancy. And worse still, I know my baby girl knows that I have this preference. And she is stopping herself from being born. And it's dangerous for her. And it's my fault. And she knows that I am the wrong and bad mother for her. So I'm laying on that bed, trying to figure out, how did this happen? And I start to think of a story I heard when I was really quite little, maybe six, six seven years old. And it's a story my mom told me about the Ramayana, from the Ramayana. It's a story of Rama and Sita, and every Indian girl knows the story. And, uh, but in case you're not all Indian girls, I'll tell you uh, the short version. So the important part for me was that in this story, uh, Sita, who's the, the woman, the perfect woman, right? Her brother-in-law draws a line in the ground around her to keep her safe. Um, but unfortunately, she is tricked into crossing the line and is kidnapped by an evil spirit and kept in captivity for a year. So when Rama finally gets around to rescuing her, he says, you must prove your purity by walking through fire. And you know what? She walks through fire <laughs> and she emerges unharmed. That's not the end of the story. The thing is, the people of the kingdom are unsatisfied because the truth is Sita had been disobedient. She did cross the line. And so Rama exiles her back to the forest to live out her days abandoned and alone. She cries so many tears into the ground that the earth opens up and swallows her whole and alive. I learned very early on that good women who cross lines are buried alive. And I believe it. I'm thinking of something my mother said. I remember she had agreed to marry my father because one of the dashing things about him was that he was thinking of leaving Kenya and moving to England. And my mom thought that was groovy, right? It's like in the 70s. And so they think of moving to England, and this is appealing to my mom. And uh, her plan is that she's going to go to England and go back to school because she had had to drop out of school in seventh grade because her parents couldn't afford the exorbitant fees that the British charged for school on their colonized subjects. Uh, so they go to England, and they live with my father's older brother. He's married, but his wife is still in India. And um, at some point, my mother asks my father to ask her brother if she can go to school. And he says, 
No. What would it look like to have a wife out of the house? And my mother says, do you know what that means? It means every single day. You have to understand, your father is the only one from that whole group who comes to England with a wife and a baby. And that means every single day, eight men are coming to the house for me to cook them the hot meal and for me to do their laundry. Every single item, hand wash, I'm just stuck in the house doing laundry. My mother did not cross her brother-in-law's line. She never went to school. I'm thinking about my mom when I realize there's one, something else that comes to mind. And I remember uh, going to India for the first time and finding this porcelain doll uh, in the house uh, that was my my father's ancestor's house. And I bring this doll out and I ask my dad whose doll it is. And uh, he says that it used to belong to a sister of his who he never met. She, and, and I said, how did you not meet your sister? And he says, well, when she was 12 or 13 years old, she was trampled by water buffalo and killed. Now, my, my mother is present when my father tells his story. And she says, I also have a sister who I never met. And she says, this sister was about 14 years old and working in construction in Kenya. And I'm seven, and I ask, Mummy, did she drive a bulldozer? My mum looks at me and says, no, no. She's one of those poor people you see with baskets on their head. And she took her basket to the pile of whatever it was that they were digging, and she dug and dug and dug to fill the basket as high as she could and she dug too deep in and the earth or the cement or the dirt whatever it collapsed on her and she was buried alive in that moment neither one of my parents knew that they both had a sister that the other one didn't know about now you would think that i'm remembering this laying on a pretty nice comfortable bed in America and I should feel grateful and comforted that in a single generation our family has come so far but I am in no mood to be comforted all I can think is these girls were not important enough to be remembered they and their stories were buried and I'm starting to feel this like tightness in my chest and I know I need an intervention. And so I pick up the phone and um, I text a friend and uh, she's Indian and she's a therapist. <laughs> and I write to her and uh, she calls her immediately and I tell her all the ways I know that women are second and girls are less. And she says, Namisha, 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 okay, stop, 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 stop. There must be something. There must be like one, there must be something you can think of that is different from these stories. Come on, think of something. Come on, Namisha, there's got to be something. Okay. Okay, I tell her. I do remember when I was in graduate school, um, my parents had their 25th wedding anniversary and 
I go to their party and I see my mother talking to a group of women. And as I'm approaching and I can hear them talking, she, my mom tells these ladies that uh, here's my daughter and she's getting a PhD in English. And uh, as I get to the group, the woman says to my mom, oh, good God, why would you let her do that? She could have gone to medical school with those brains, huh? And my mom can't answer because the woman just keeps going. And, and she says, look, listen, I understand. Boys these days, they want to marry a girl with a little bit of education. I understand that. But a PhD, I mean, that is too much education, okay? <laughs> that is going to interfere with her marriage prospects. I look at my mom and the, the energy is just like drained from her. And I steal myself and get ready to hear what I have always heard. Yes, she's a clever girl. We told her she should have gone to medical school. We suggested dentistry, pharmacy, nursing, phlebotomy. She said no to everything. We tried. I look at my mom and I'm ready. She turns to the woman and she says, my daughter wanted to get the most and maximum education, okay? And so that's what she's doing. And it has got nothing to do with getting married. <laughs> and, and my friend on the phone says, Nimisha, how did it feel for you to tell me that? <laughs> And I say, felt pretty good. And she says, well, and what does it mean for you to tell me that story? Can you tell me what that means to you? And that's uh, slow, sort of mellifluous voice. And I'm like, okay, I could tell you anything when you talk to me. And, and I'm like, okay, um, you know, it means that like my mom stood up for me, you know, she stood up for me, she stood up for my education. She says, right, Nimisha, if you had gone to medical school, your mother would never have learned to do that. You taught her how to be your mother. You're going to learn how to be a mother to your daughter. Don't worry so much, okay? It's going to be all right. It's going to be just fine. Okay. <laughs> I hang up the phone. And I re remind myself... My daughter will teach me how to be a better mother. And I look at my phone in my hand, and I start to think, in my hand is the blood of the women and people who came before me. In my hand is the blood of my mother, my last aunts, uh, my grandmothers. And then I remember a name, and it hits me so hard, I actually gasp out loud, and I say, Natima. Oh my God, Natima, I had almost forgotten about her. My mother told me about Natima when I was pregnant the first time. She told me that Natima is her father's mother, so my great-grandmother. Natima was widowed at a very young age and was left to raise two young boys by herself in India. Now, at some point, her in-laws decide to move to um, Kenya, but they haven't told her. She finds out and she 
uh, grabs her two boys and she rushes to this boat and she's running and running and she doesn't know what she's running to. She doesn't have any idea what this other country is. She doesn't know who's going to come after her as a consequence of her running. But she runs. She gets to this boat. She literally throws her two boys on. And in a desperate last dash, she throws herself onto this boat. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure what happened in that story. But the truth is, she made it to Kenya, and I was born the great-granddaughter of one of her two sons. I start to relax. I decide it's time to get up off the bed. In the two steps between the bed and the door, I realize that my leg is wet. It takes me 10 more steps to get to the bathroom, and I realize without a doubt, that my water has broken. Natima is the beginning of the story. She changed the whole story. Her story is not buried. She crossed a line and survived. She was strong and she was fearless and she was good and she was true. And her blood runs in my hand and in my body and in my baby girl who finally now knows that I am ready to be her mother. Thank you. Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Vera Carruthers, Soraya Shockley, Sally Helm, Odelia Rubin, Jenna Hannum, and Janiel Kastner. Our story editor is Michaela Bly, who also coaches all the performers for our Family Ghosts live shows. We couldn't do anything we do without her. Our storytellers this week were Sandy Marks, Richard Cardillo, and Nimisha Ladva. Learn more about all of them at the links in the show notes for this episode. Our production assistant is Julia Press. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett. Our theme music is by Luis Guerra. And the music you're hearing in the background right now is Your Ghost by the Maggie Carson Band. Executive producers for season three are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. Special thanks, as always, to the kindred spirits, our supporters on Patreon, who help make our work possible. In addition to ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content, Kindred Spirits have already heard this episode. They get to listen to everything we make before anyone else. And this week, they're getting a special bonus episode featuring two more songs by the Maggie Carson Band, performed live at the Caveat Theater as part of our Season 3 launch party. If you have the means, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash family ghosts we are proud creative partners of spoke media find more great podcasts 
at spokemedia.io. Season 3 continues next week. We'll talk to you then, and thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts. I think the theme of my life is that I, I wasn't necessarily the the boy that I was supposed to be, uh, <laughs> which is you know a, caused a lot of trouble in my life. Natalie grew up feeling like she didn't fit in, and when her father died, those feelings got even more intense. And I went down the hall, and I opened my door, and. I could feel something was wrong before I could pinpoint it. And then my eyes found it. There was a large black hunting knife stabbed in the middle of my bed mattress. Natalie and her family confront a ghost with a sinister plan. But is it her father or someone else? That's next week when season three of Family Ghosts continues. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.